0: This Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. The new spring seminar schedule has just been announced. Register early for best pricing. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you.
1: Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. Our guest today is Dr. Dwayne Miller, Manager of Engineering Services at the Lincoln Electric Company, Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Miller earned his Bachelor's Degree in Welding Engineering from Laterno University in Longview, Texas, a Master's Degree in Materials Engineering from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and was awarded an honorary Doctor of Science degree from Laterno University in 1997. An American Welding Society member since he was 19, he currently serves as chair of the AWS D1 Structural Welding Code Committee and is a member of the Technical Activities Committee. Duane is a member of the AISC Specification Committee, a licensed professional engineer, and is both a certified welding inspector and a certified welder. Dr. Miller is a recognized authority on the design of welded connections and is in demand as a speaker on the subject all over the world. He publishes frequently in the industry press, and on three occasions has been awarded the coveted Silver Quill Award of the AWS for the excellence of his published work. He has authored chapters of many texts, including AISC's Design Guide 21, Welded Connections, A Primer for Engineers. In 2001, he received the AISC T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award, and in 2005, he received AISC's Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome to Dwayne Miller. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today.
2: You're welcome, Margaret.
1: Okay, so we'll just start off um, with the easy ones. How did you get involved in the welding industry?
2: The answer to that really starts by um, understanding a little bit about my undergraduate work. I went to Laterno University in Longview, Texas. They're one of the few schools that has a program uh, that offers a degree in welding engineering. And In fact, I went to the school as a mechanical engineering major, but was kind of intrigued by this welding uh, program that they had. I was intrigued because it was... unique. Um, I got to campus. There was a lot of enthusiasm about the program. I rather liked the hands-on aspect of the program. But maybe the biggest draw uh, of the program was they had a 100% uh, placement rate of graduates from the welding engineering program. And I didn't go to college so much to get a degree. I went there to get a job. <laughs> and uh, I actually had a high motive to get a job. Had my high school sweetheart that I wanted to get ma- get married to. Oh, well, so that's good motivation. That's why I pursued welding engineering but also uh, continued on in the mechanical program and got a double double major.
1: Oh, okay. I did not know that. That's not in your bio when we read it.
2: I did. I <laughs> guess I don't broadcast it.
1: What do you think has been the most significant change to the welding technology in your career?
2: Well, in my business, there's there may be three major parts of welding technology. There's the power supplies, there's welding consumables, and then there's the mode of application. And all three have changed uh, remarkably. Have they? In the power uh, source side, uh, we've gone from basic uh, electrical uh, rectifiers, transformers uh, kinds of systems to now computer-controlled power supplies where you actually program them with a PC to get the output that you're looking for. And that's really revolutionized the arc and given us much finer control over the welding arc than we've ever had. In the consumable side, we have a much more... um, consistent consumable today whether we're talking about control of mechanical properties control of hydrogen control of the arc there've been tremendous advances in that area and then in terms of application robots when i joined the industry were were just a concept and today uh, they're they're widely used the precision that we can get uh, out of welding is uh, so much more advanced than than when i joined the industry just 30 some years ago hmm.
1: So how long have the the computer applications been around?
2: The last dozen years or so uh, is when that really took off, and uh, even the advancements in the last five years have been pretty remarkable.
1: I I know that you're a certified weld inspector and and a welder. Are you a good welder?
2: i 'm a good welder excuse me i 'm an okay welder. I used to be a good welder. I used to maybe I, I could say I was a, was an excellent welder when I joined the company and my first job when I was in sales and and even my first uh, part in our welding technology center I, I used to weld almost every day oh you did and uh, but welding's like any other skill, you have to stay at it, and now most of my welding 's at home. And uh, uh, I just don't do it as much as I used to. What do you weld at home? Oh, anything that's broken. <laughs> uh, I think my last project was repairing um, the bed of my truck that was rusted out. So uh, there's once you have a welder, it's amazing how many things uh, need welding, and moreover, how many friends you have that have things that need to be welded. That that really goes up when you know how to weld. You've got a lot of friends who have oh, yes. projects.
1: Absolutely. That's a good friend to have, someone who can weld. There you go. You've been at Lincoln Electric for over 30 years.
2: 32.
1: 32. uh, Where you've worked with Omer Blodgett, a legend in our industry. Uh, What's the most important thing that you've learned from him?
2: Oh, the most important. Um, Or anything, really. Thank you. I I can handle that better. So many things. Uh, I suspect what... um, probably surprises people most when they're working with Mr. Blodgett, a man of his acclaim, and he's such a humble individual. And uh, his respect for others, um, his giving nature, I'm not sure i learned as much about that as I should have, but he certainly exhibited a humble nature that was very, very impressive. He really had an, an admiration for those who have gone before us. And he used to always talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. I thought that was his saying, and then I found out that Isaac Newton uh, used that phrase. If, if, I've see, if I can see a little further than others, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And so his admiration and respect for some of the uh, other individuals was, was uh, immense. And his approach to, to uh, problem solving was uh, always interesting, uh, very cautious. What might have seemed to be the obvious solution so often turns out not to be. And he was always very reluctant to sign on to the early solutions. And I, I, I think that has served me well uh, to be very introspective about jumping on to the uh, commonly accept, accepted view initially.
1: Do you have any other Omer stories you want to tell?
2: Other Omer stories? <laughs> sure. um, among other things, uh, I remember... Um, We'd go into meetings uh, uh, with customers' problems. Uh, We'd start talking about troubleshooting. And he had such a simple saying. He uh, used to start out by saying, Now, we're going to do a little troubleshooting here, brainstorming. And uh, there's no dumb ideas. And humbly, he used to always say, Now, I don't know anything about what you're doing, so you're going to have to tell me about this. Now, I knew good and well he knew much of the background. But it always put people at ease. Yes. And they would tell their story. And um, that was always helpful as as he dealt with that. I also remember that uh, he always had a, a tremendous sense of obligation. And he said, you know, these folks came in. They spent a lot of money to to come visit us today. He said, we've got to come up with a solution. It was like this, this um, gorilla was on your shoulders. You, you had to solve the problem. There wasn't any just sitting down and we we're going to chat with these folks and drink a cup of coffee and shake their hands and say goodbye. We, we had to come up with a solution. There was a seriousness about his approach to things, and I thought that was very, uh, very helpful. Mr. Blodgett was always a big one for involvement with committees. Excellent. We always like to hear that. And he, uh, he encouraged me to get involved with both uh, AWS committees and, and AISC committees, and that advice has certainly served me well. Uh, he encouraged me to write papers. And uh, I remember uh, as a rookie going to him. I said, "Well, what what should I write about?" And he said, "Well, find something you don't know anything about." <laughs> and he said, "Believe me, after you commit to write a paper about it, you're going to know something about it." Uh, that was uh, uh, not um, that was anti conventional wisdom, right? Yeah, You you'd normally find an area of your expertise, but right that you
1: already know everything. Yeah. About
2: it. Yeah, and he, he'd encourage me to dive, dive into something that, that maybe wasn't uh, so well-defined. And uh, so I thought that was good advice, yeah, too. you probably learned a lot. I did, I did. That's where all your expertise came from. Well, a lot of it did, sure.
1: You brought up AWS. Um, let's talk about that. You, you're you very involved with AWS. So recently, AWS converted to a five-year cycle with its documents?
2: That's correct.
1: Um what role did you play in that, and were you did you lead the charge in that?
2: Well, it was a group effort. Um, in fact, I've thought for many years it would be desirable to get off of the two-year cycle. In fact, uh, the AWS board had established a policy that said that the D1.1 code needed to be published every two years. It was driven by financial concerns at the time, and I rather rejected that premise. Um, Uh, focusing rather on uh, what would be good for the industry. What I had heard is uh, ongoing complaints about Uh, the changes every two years, keeping up with the changes, and of course there was this whole coordination of issues with other... uh, coordination of publication uh, editions with other standards. And with AISC on nominally a five-year cycle, we went over to um, advocate the use of the same five-year cycle for uh, AWS. And Ray Shook, who is now the current AWS executive uh, director, uh, agreed that the policy was uh, ill-founded, that it had been established before his time. And he said we should do what's the right thing for the industry, not not uh, uh, be concerned about that financial stream. And so uh, we get, were given the green light, and the uh, uh, committee decided five years was the right uh, interval. I have a feeling maybe it's going to become six uh, now that the IBC has uh, IBC. looked at mm-hmm. that interval, but that's uh, that's the nature of the change. I also would like to mention uh, Bill Millick, uh, who, of course, just recently passed away. But I remember Bill one time saying that the value of a standard is reflected in its longevity. Mm-hmm. And if that's a true statement, and your code was being done, re- republished every two years, uh, uh, what does that say? Exactly. And uh, so, so I, I think that the five, six years is the right, right move, and, and so we'll give that a try for a few years.
1: Very good. Everybody's always happy when, the, when there's longer and longer time between publishing of, of all these codes. Let's talk about the Northridge earthquake. I um, have intelligence from AISC that on the anniversary of the Northridge earthquake, somebody in my organization gets an email every year, and he told me to ask you about it. So uh, what do you think the importance of the Northridge earthquake is, um, the impact that it's had on our industry?
2: Well, it's been huge, and I think there are very positive elements of it, and I need to say there are also some negative Impact, and I think the negative impact, frankly, is not well deserved. There's a perception that steel buildings did not perform well in Northridge. I don't think that's correct at all. If you review the history, I think the um, early publicity that um, reported, many people reported hundreds of damaged buildings. And when the dust settled and the Incomplete fusion issues in the root that was detected that were detected after the earthquake. The so-called W1A uh, defects uh, were not earthquake damaged at all. And when you subtract that out of the database, you find that the damage was concentrated in a relatively few uh, buildings. None of them collapsed. Uh, nobody died in a steel frame building, and most of them were. Um, Put back into ser- repaired and put back into service. I think it was a great record. Mm-hmm. Now, the system didn't work as expected, and so it was a problem that needed to be investigated. Uh, but what came out of that, I think, are far superior systems um, that will be more reliable in future earthquakes. And so the net effect is I think steel will be even a better system in the future um, than it was in the previous one. So it had a huge impact on our industry.
1: We learned so much.
2: We, we really did. We really did. And I think the industry is uh, much more aware of welding-related issues, uh, weld details, uh, backing, weld tabs, weld access holes, uh, much more cognizant of um, welding procedures, uh, welding processes, some of those variables. Um, I think as an industry there's a much broader understanding of the role of fracture. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I <clears throat> am still disappointed with is the number of people who uh, seem to think that the avoidance of fracture is a guarantee of ductility. And that's not not necessarily... That's not the case. That's not the case. Two different phenomena. Mm-hmm. And I fear that there's still some people who haven't mastered the concepts behind ductility. Uh, but uh, uh, it was... Uh, certainly a a major change in our in our industry and on january 17th every year i tend to send out a an email uh to my colleagues uh who worked that project worked that problem uh on the anniversary of that uh event that was uh what 17 years ago this upcoming january yes Mm
1: -hmm. 1994 And you were actually appointed to chair AWS's presidential task group on Northridge earthquake issues. So, I mean, obviously you know a great deal about this topic. So is that why, because you were the chair of this task group?
2: That's a good question, Margaret. Um, (laughs) It actually, I I think I have to go back. We um, have sales offices all across the country. Mm -hmm. And our Los Angeles office is one of the larger ones. And that means you have more experienced managers out there. And the manager at the time of the earthquake was gentleman, Ed Morgan. And Ed called me up two or three weeks after the earthquake. And he said, Dwayne, have you heard about the damaged buildings, steel-framed buildings, from the Northridge earthquake? Now, all the news was about the concrete bridges that had fallen down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, of course, they were very visible. They had had very dramatic impacts on the transportation in, in the L.A. area. And that's what people were focused on. And people were talking about rapid replacement of bridges. And some of us wanted to see steel bridges in as replacements. And that was the, that was the technical discussion, not, not buildings. Mm-hmm. We had seen, um, oh, the uh, tilt-up slab construction and timber construction. And we would seen some of the concrete structures that had collapsed. But nobody was talking about steel. I said, Ed, no, I haven't heard about this at all. And he said, you ought to get out here. He said, I'm selling equipment to people that are going in and repairing these buildings at night. And Ed sounded like this was something sinister. In fact, it wasn't sinister at all. It was practical. The buildings were occupied during the day, and people would evacuate and, and weld at night and, and patch the building back up for occupation the next day. And, but Ed didn't know that. He just knew they were going in at night. <laughs> and he said, You ought to come out here. One thing led to another, and I went out and I visited six sites. It was quite a day. And I quickly came to an assessment that it was a design-related issue. And I was in L.A. on a Friday and came back over the weekend. And on Monday, I called AISC. And today, I don't remember whether I called Neil Zundel or Jerry Heyer. But I said, do you gentlemen know about the damaged buildings in, from Northridge? And neither whoever I talked with didn't know. I said, well, you ought to find out. And I told them where I'd been. And told them what my initial impressions were. So that was in February. And then in March, there was a meeting that involved people, including building officials from Los Angeles, some of which you didn't know uh, about the damage. Six or eight of us were asked to give firsthand reports of what we had seen. So that was my early on involvement. And, and you asked about the presidential task group, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get to that market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But over the summer... Of 94, a whole variety of well-intended but misdirected, misguided recommendations started coming out. And many of them were focused on welding. And because of some superficial characteristics of the cracks that occurred during the, the earthquake and similarities to underbeat cracking that can occur due to hydrogen and other factors in welding. Uh, There was a group of people who thought the solution was to increase preheat, to do post-heat hydrogen soaks, changing the welding processes, peening the welds. Several people thinking the steel specifications were the problem. A lot of focus on recycled steel and concerns about tramp elements in the steel. And my assessment was that that wasn't where the solutions were going. Those weren't going to be the issues that led to solutions to this problem. And I was complaining to the American Welding Society that they seemed to be pretty inactive when uh, this was going on out there and welding was taking a black eye. Uh, people were saying instead of using D1.1 uh, structure welding code for steel buildings. We should be using D1.5 for bridges and using the fracture control plan. I complained over and over again, and somebody said, Well, if something's going to happen, I guess it's going to be you, Dwayne. So yeah, you're chairman of this committee, and we need to put together a committee and, and uh, look into these issues. And so we did. And uh, frankly, uh, one of the things I'm very pleased with is uh, after the test of time of uh, uh, 15 years or whatever, looking back to when we issued that report, the committee was right on. And of the assessment of the various issues, uh, I can't recall anything that was uh, where the committee was wrong. Got it right. Got it right. We would expect nothing else from you, Glenn.
1: So what do you think? I mean, uh, this had big impact on the code, and did it did it change a lot of things, the way that we look at lease seismic welding? Um,
2: the code... Big impact on AISC seismic provisions. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, of course, that generated CPRP, connection prequalification. Huge impact. Welding code? Um, Not so much. Not so much. Two or three big picture things that came out of that. Um, uh, Certainly uh, some detailing, backing removal and welding through access holes and now some special tests to demonstrate welder skill to be able to do that provisions to demonstrate consistent toughness in the deposited weld metal uh, certainly some hydrogen control measures that um, were were imp- uh, implemented primarily because of some identified voids uh, in the code, but those are the big ones.
1: Uh, We talked about Omer a little bit already. Other than him, who were some of your most significant mentors?
2: Perhaps in a chronological way. i got to start the list with my dad. Well, sure. And uh, my dad, who's still living, uh, is a remarkable man. Uh, Dad was uh, of the old school where you took responsibility for yourself and your own actions, and um, you were accountable. You did your best. And dad had an attitude, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. He just did it. Somehow I think that came from his dad, my grandfather, who was a Kansas farmer. You had to do it yourself. First, he didn't have money to pay anybody else to do it. But somehow you just kind of figured out a way to get it done. So my dad was a huge, still is a huge influence on my life. When I went to Letourneau, one of my professors was Dr. David Hartman. And he eventually, while I was there, became the dean of the engineering department. The old dean had left, and Dr. Hartman had taken over, and he assumed the portfolio of some of the courses that the previous dean had taken. And one of them was an advanced engineering lab. And I had taken the basic engineering lab the semester before. I'd done well. And so now I was taking the advanced course as well as the rest of my colleagues. And Dr. Hartman was teaching it for the first time. We submitted our reports, and we were all shocked. I think the class average was probably 50%. <laughs> he absolutely shredded our reports. There was more red on the paper when it was all done than there was black, and I had put the black on the white paper. It was unbelievable. That became report writing 401, if you will. And he like no one else taught me technical writing grateful to this day I don't know if I learned anything about engineering experimentation but I learned about report writing he was unyielding uh, in his demand for excellence I appreciate that and uh, so he was a huge mentor and then of course uh, I joined Lincoln upon graduation and the gentleman who interviewed me was uh, Mr. Don Hastings and Mr. Hastings at the time was vice president of sales he went on to become CEO of the company and Mr. Hastings had an unbelievable impact on my life. I think I would have been an engineer in a back room someplace and probably would have never accomplished any, anything uh, similar to what was able, I was able to do if it hadn't been for uh, his tutelage. Mr. Hastings was the eternal optimist, the uh, salesman of salesmen, wonderful public speaker. He would prepare his speech so well It always came off as if it were off the cuff. He would practice his lines. He said, I'm thinking about starting this way. He said, what do you think? And it was just part of his MO. But he's a wonderful man, and uh, so Mr. Hastings would be on that list. And then, of course, we've mentioned Omer Blodgett, but the other gentleman who I have an immense amount of respect for and everybody in our industry knows, Dr. John Barson. And I had studied his textbook in graduate school. So it was just an honor when I got to meet him and Stan Rolfe. Dr. Barsman and I were on a variety of committees together. He taught me about staying at Marriott Hotels. (laughs) And he was, uh, I don't know, medallion or whatever they call it. And then I became medallion because I hung out with him enough. And and then we used to get together at the concierge lounge for breakfast in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I'd bring his book. And I'd have read a chapter, and I had all my... post-it notes in there of questions that I'd want to ask him so over a bagel and coffee we'd go through and I'd say John I have a question about this equation I have a question about this figure and it was it was nothing it was wasn't patronizing at all it was one-on-one tutoring Uh, what a wonderful experience and what a giving man there's another humble man and a world-class individual and and um, Dr. Barsom's a model for many of us
1: You just mentioned uh, public speaking. You are one of the most dynamic and interesting speakers I've ever heard. Um, Is this something that you've always been good at, or
2: did you have to learn how to be a good speaker? The day I was born, I could speak (laughs) like this, Margaret. (laughs) Margaret, thank you. That's kind of you. I suspect I probably had gifting that way. I remember as a kid, uh, my dad told me, uh, Son, if you have something to say, stand up, say it. He was a military officer, my dad was. Uh, a man of his word, he said it, and people listened and responded, and and so that was probably an early example, I, I think, in in, in my uh, my career. But then um, another individual who had tremendous influence on me, uh, Jerry Hinkle. Jerry Hinkle worked for Lincoln Electric and was manager of our application engineering department when I joined the company. And Jerry was a very, very uh, skilled public speaker. And I asked Jerry one day. What made him so good? And Jerry said, Well, he said, I think I'm so slow that by the time I figure figure something out, I can explain it to anybody. <laughs> and I suspect there was some humility, I'm sure there was some humility in what Jerry was saying. But what I took from Jerry, and I try to use this, is Jerry set out the steps of what you had to go through to understand something. Step one, step two, step three, step four. And he was very disciplined in making sure that he walked people through and got to the right conclusion. And, and that was uh, that had a huge impact on me, and I, I try to do that. I really do want my audience to, to learn, because my goal, of course, is to make sure people Use welding as often as they can they use it effectively they get a dependable result It's economical and I want them to learn and uh, Jerry helped me that way and then um, I think the other uh, in the last uh, item I, uh, I attend uh, a church Parkside Church where the pastor's Alistair Begg and Alistair Begg's on the radio around the world 1500 stations or so but every Sunday I get to hear him and I can't help but listen to anybody and try to pick up ideas and why did they use that technique or whatever. And, and he's a world-class public speaker. I'm sure I've gained from him.
1: So you're always honing your craft. You're always trying to learn how to, to be to
2: Try to take something away from, why did that work? Yeah. Well, why did that not work? Try to refine it.
1: Uh, you've gone from being a protege in our industry to being an expert. Um, what's it like for you to now have proteges of your own?
2: Well, it's very natural because, again, Mr. Blodgett, his philosophy, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, he viewed his expertise as something he held for a time and was going to pass on to somebody else. And I liken it to to something you inherit. I have my grandfather's shotgun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someday one of my kids will have it. I need to care for it, and then I'll pass it along. If I don't care for it, they're not going to have anything. I think this knowledge that we've assumed is something to be transferred along, and I see that as part of the obligation. Somebody gave it to me, I need to pass it on to somebody else. Mm I think it's very natural to do that.
1: Who are your proteges at the moment?
2: Well, in fact, we we um, are looking to uh, hire a couple more at Lincoln. Oh, that's uh, good to if know. If anybody's listening, is interested, <laughs> let me know.
1: Oh, we might have a lot of lot of applications
2: now, Dwayne. <laughs> uh, that'd be fine. Um, informally, I have many at Lincoln. I get to work with our new hires and get to uh, talk to them about how they work with my customers and how they solve problems and. I lecture them about things that they should absolutely never, never, never do. And uh,
1: how big is your engineering staff at Lincoln?
2: Uh, oh, we probably have three or four hundred engineers in all the various groups, uh, at least for our Cleveland-based operations. And we have operations around the world, and I assume would be about double that. Yeah, we hire usually uh, twenty or thirty uh, new engineers a year, and so I get to uh, talk with them, and then. Right now, as the D1, AWS D1 committee chair, I'm uh, highly cognizant of our volunteers, and I try to try to coach them along the lines of uh, what do we have to do to uh, make good use of the volunteer's time and mm-hmm. uh, make effective uh, changes that will benefit the industry.
1: You've said a leader is a person who knows an outcome, has a plan to get there and can convince people to follow. Uh, are you thinking of anybody specific when you say that?
2: Well, you have it almost right. <laughs> you, you, you have the essence of it. I say that they know uh, where they're going, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, know how to get there, and they can persuade others to follow. And so the first part of that has to do with vision. Where are you headed? What are you going to do? What does it look like? How to articulate that vision to the masses. How to get there. Strategy. Strategy. Uh, How are we going to accomplish what's the uh, task at at hand? And then, of course, persuasion, and that's where Don Hastings was a big influence in my life. Uh, How do we get others to come along? It has to be a reasonable goal. It has to be a commonly held goal. Um, They have to see it as achievable and uh, get people to come along. Uh, Now, I think you asked me, who was I thinking about, right?
1: Yes, did you have somebody Um, specific in mind when you you say
2: that? uh, Ronald Reagan's my hero. I think he was quite a leader. Uh, We're learning more and more about him as his, like his diaries. Mm -hmm. In the privacy of his bedroom at night, he's writing down his thoughts. Now when we look back at him, uh, there was a man who had a strategy and uh, was looking at what he has to do. Um, He had a vision. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It happened. It, it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. Uh, so uh, so I, I find him to be a fascinating leader. But uh, a lot of our leaders, um, and I think not coincidental at all, uh, military people and coaches. And so we think about people like Lombardi and, and uh, Landry uh, in the coaching arena, um, and John Wooden from... Um, UCLA. Uh, I know John Wooden uh, one time said, I've never scored one goal as a coach. And I think that's uh, representative of, of the leadership role. He knows that's not his job. Mm-hmm. He needs to motivate others, others and help them do that. Uh, and then the other group, uh, military leaders, uh, you know, recently Colin Powell and, and uh, Eisenhower and a lot of their writings. So those are some of the people that I've, I've studied.
1: So what lessons in leadership can you offer? Well, I think it goes back to those three.
2: Uh, First, what's the vision? One of the big challenges is to simplify a vision, Uh, make it easy for people to understand. Martin Luther King, I uh, dream of a day where my children will be evaluated not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Wow, very clear vision Mm
1: -hmm.
2: of what he hoped for. So the vision is critical. Uh, Many people don't stop long enough to think through the vision and how they're going to articulate that. Uh, The second component, how to get there, uh, many people don't do that either. What are the steps we're going to have to go through? Where are going to be the obstacles? Um, Some general, and I don't know who it was, said uh, a battle plan is only good for 24 hours. Absolutely, things change. We have to adjust. That's part of that strategy. And then getting others to follow. You have to kind of know where people are coming from and where, th- where their concerns are. Reasonable people don't sign on to unreasonable tasks. Uh, people aren't going to sign up to that aren't shared. And so that, that's all part of, part of leadership. And then um, I, I, I have something I call the cost of leadership. And part of the cost of leadership is you're going to be criticized. Mm-hmm. If you're a leader, there's going to be all kinds of people line up to tell you why you're wrong and why it's the wrong way to do it, and, and so you've got to have a stomach for that. Mm-hmm. General Powell said um, command is lonely. That, that's part of the cost of leadership, so that's part of
1: it. You once mentioned that problem solving is the most difficult mental task. What are some of the more interesting problems that you've had to solve over the years?
2: I was quoting a psychologist who said that. I think problem-solving is difficult because we don't know where it's going to take us. There's not a prescribed course. You know, there, there are people who say they have problem-solving techniques, but I think all of them let us down uh, because there's just not always a clear, frequently isn't a clear path. Most interesting, uh, well, Northridge was a huge multidimensional uh, challenge, mm-hmm. uh, problem, uh, I've been involved with some major um, committee activity. Uh, we, I was chairman or co chairman of the AWS Bridge Welding Code when we put together the fracture control plan. Mm-hmm. And then we've already talked about the um, Presidential Task Group, and then uh, eventually that led to the Seismic Welding Supplement, D1.8, and those were were big challenges. One of the um, more intriguing problems, and my customers do all kinds of things, including uh, uh, make snowmobiles. One of my customers made, uh, manufactured snowmobiles, had a problem with a muffler system. And they had tested this extensively in their laboratory, thought they had a reasonable depiction of field loading, and it had passed all the tests in their lab. They put them into service, and after about 200 hours, they started getting these failures. And of course, the failures were, quote, in the weld, end quote, but really in the welded connection Mm -hmm. at the toe of the weld. And I started getting these photographs, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what was happening. Eventually, I said, I really need some pieces. And so they sent me some assemblies and I started looking at the assemblies. And I realized that on this assembly there was a second bracket that was breaking. And it turned out that the second bracket was actually the primary fracture. And everything that everybody had been focusing on was a secondary fracture after the first had occurred. So seeing the bigger picture was key here. And then we found out that this primary bracket that was failing had never been tested it had been added after the fact. And so it was, um, it was a challenge because I had misinformation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I had been told and assumed what was fact. It turned out not to be fact. I would
1: think that would probably happen a lot in what you do.
2: I always assume that some of the information people have, is given me as fact, that some of it's not. And we got to. There's always missing information. That's a given. Mm-hmm. But there's usually misinformation. What people think is fact isn't.
1: That's probably a lot of what your job is, is sifting through that, to figure out what is and isn't actually happening.
2: Another interesting project, I won't name it because most people would know what I'm talking about. There was a major sports stadium that was erected recently. I was asked to get involved because there were hundreds of bad connections hundreds of bad welded connections. So we got together at the job site. We're sitting around the trailer and I'm listening to the reports from the inspection agency. And what I know is the number of reports are in the dozens, not in the hundreds. And I went up to the whiteboard and I said to the audience, I said, gentlemen, I'm, I'm a little bit slow. I said, I'm not I'm not getting this. I said it sounds to me like we have four kinds of problems that I heard described and I labeled them or identified them as A, B, C, and D. And I said, "Now, was there anything other than A, B, C, and D's?" Everybody agreed, "No, everything we talked about so far fit into one of those four categories." And I said, "Now, how many A's did we have?" They rifled through the reports and there were like eight A's. I said, "Okay." And I said, "How many B's do we have?" Well, there's six B's. All right, And I said, how many C's do we have? And they said, well, counting the ones that are B's? And I said, no, C's are defined differently than B's. They said, oh, well, then we have two less B's and we have two C's. I said, okay. I said, now, what about D's? Well, we agreed there there was one D. So now the hundreds of problems have now boiled down to two dozen. And I went back and I said, now, if all we had was A's, I said, A's have to be fixed, but... We wouldn't be having this meeting if all we had was A's, right? Everybody said, yeah, A's are kind of routine. It's no big deal. I said, what about B's? Well, they're a little bit more critical, but you're right. We wouldn't have brought in all these consultants, and we wouldn't be here. And I said, what about C's? They said the same thing. We wouldn't be. I said, so what we really have is one D, right? They said, yeah. I said, well, why don't we just work, work on D? And
1: that was just one connection. One connection.
2: <laughs> one connection. Now, there's more to the story than what I'm telling you. There's, yeah. but
1: It's amazing how quickly it all gets blown up out of proportion.
2: People are very concerned, and yeah. this 1D was of great concern. Mm-hmm. And that got fixed, and the project went along, and, and it worked out well. But, you know, it was sifting through and getting to the facts, and the fact wasn't hundreds of bad connections.
1: Mm-hmm. You may have already answered this, but what were some of your most challenging projects? Are the ones you've talked about
2: the most challenging, or were there others oh uh, yeah challenge was one, usually ones with people issues <laughs> yes and uh, the one about the sports stadium you know clearly uh, there were people issues and those who were making the claims of hundreds uh, had to eat some crow mm-hmm. and uh, so that's a challenge um, and so that that was that was challenging there have been others uh, again uh Sometimes it's misinformation. And sometimes it's information you don't have. There was one that was particularly rewarding because it was for Lincoln Electric. Uh, we had a piece of machinery in our own operation. It's used in manufacturing flux, especially a piece of equipment custom made for us. And the general details were that we had paid half of the amount before we received the equipment, and we were going to give them the other half. It was agreed upon that we'd pay the other half after it had been in service and operating trouble-free for for two or three months. Well, this never did work. We got two or three weeks of service out of it and it started self-destructing, and the manufacturer came in and repaired it by welding, and didn't do a good job with the repairs and those started breaking. So every two or three weeks they're in fixing this machine. And this went on for about six months and they said, it's yours. (laughs) We're not fixing it anymore. You don't have to pay us for the other half but it's your machine. And so this is about the time the maintenance department called me because it was out of commission and they said, we need this machine up and running. And we got to have it running on Monday morning and this was Friday afternoon. they said and we've got to buy a replacement and we can't get the replacement in here for three weeks and we need to get three weeks of use out of this machine and so on friday afternoon i started working on that and and again there were a lot of unknowns and uh, i proposed a, uh, a repair and they said that's about a week's worth of work and we've got two days and I said, okay. And so then we came up with another scheme, and it had about three days' worth of repair. And I said, gentlemen, I we're going to have to... We're not going to run Monday. We're going to fix this thing Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I said, we can't can't do anything more about that. And so I was cutting into their production. I said, but if we don't do it right, we're not going to get three weeks out of this thing. We've never had three weeks uninterrupted run on this thing from the beginning. And so um, Saturday, they cut into it and found out that my concerns were well founded there was far more cracking in this thing than we had fatigue cracks far more than anybody had suspected that was gratifying because i had spent a lot of company money with this alternate repair and we got it fixed and went into production on tuesday and it ran for about three months wow uh, uninterrupted (laughs) And uh, then they found some other things. I said, folks, you were supposed to replace this after three weeks. He said, well, after it started running so well. <laughs> I think we got nine months out of it before it was all done. But it was fun to, you know, most, most of my stuff is for our customers. Mm-hmm. It was something good to do something for the company and right. return some back And to see how
1: it all played out. Right, yeah. right. What were some of your most fun projects?
2: Fun projects are usually when I, I have a customer who's really grateful and appreciative. Had a customer makes um, made a product. They had um, they had some problems with generation one, and they redesigned it and brought out generation two two years later, and it didn't work too well. And then they brought out generation three to solve the problems with generation one and two, and it didn't work very well. So they asked me to get involved with that. I'm deliberately being a little vague as to what the product is, (laughs) uh, but they had just sent out Generation 3. The product was supposed to last about five years, and it was lasting ten months. And so um, I had to respond fast. They called me on Friday. I was there on Monday. Uh, By Monday afternoon, I had kind of figured out the problem, and by Tuesday evening, we had a solution conceptualized. Two weeks later, uh, they had a prototype built and uh, put it into fatigue testing, and after six weeks, they had better accelerated fatigue tests. After six weeks, they had better life than they'd ever seen with any of these other kinds of uh, systems and so uh, uh, that that was particularly gratifying because this was a multi-year multi-million dollar problem for them i appreciate customers who are loyal to us when we help them out and they convert their business over and we benefit uh, we have a mutually beneficial relationship so Mm -hmm. that's a particularly rewarding one what's your best advice for engineering students that's a great question margaret first and I guess I'm getting uh, old enough and, and um, the little hair I have is gray enough <laughs> that I can start talking like an old guy. Young engineers today are coming out with a better set of skills than their supervisors have. And they know more about computers and programs and software and what can be done and they can do more faster and without question. But my advice would be learn to respect experience. Learn to respect intuition. Um, you may not be able to put in an equation to intuition, uh, but intuition is really important, really important. So learn to respect that. I'd also encourage uh, young engineers to do both uh, focus their career in a narrow area, but also uh, broaden uh, their area of expertise. Bill Thornton says, y- you can't know everything, and if you never learn anything more, you're just going to uh, want to get paid more to do something that a graduate from, from uh, college can do. Mm-hmm. He says, so become a specialist. And, of course, he encourages people to specialize in connections. Yes. But I think specialization is important. Uh, dig deep, deep, deep into one specific area. But while you do that, you also broaden uh, your career um, Learn more about materials. Learn more about non-technical things, sales, uh, finance. Learn about um, areas that are important to your employer that that may not be in the core area of responsibility of of technical folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will serve you well. Read Petrosky. Everybody should read Henry Petrosky's books. Uh, Start with um, To Engineer is Human. I think Petrosky should be on everybody's reading list. Get involved with technical committees. Uh, you'll meet these giants we're talking about. Your base of contacts expands. You're on the leading edge of thought. Mm-hmm. I'd encourage people to do that. I guess that's enough.
1: <laughs> that's pretty good advice. If you were not involved in the welding industry, what job would you like?
2: That's another great question. <laughs> I think I'd um, have enjoyed a career in law. Really? I think I could have been a lawyer. And lawyers are involved with Mm problem-solving. I think good lawyers don't compromise on truth. Uh, I don't think you have to do that at all. Uh, So I I would find that fascinating. I've always had a desire to pursue entrepreneurial activities, and it could have been almost anything, uh, but that was uh, certainly a desire. I could have easily chosen to have been a pastor. My oldest son is, uh, and that's... uh, that would be a worthwhile pursuit, and I, I I think I could have done that. I still may pursue this. Public office is something that's always been intriguing to me. Really, and I think of dabbling on that when my career at Lincoln Electric's over. That uh,
1: what do um, you think about taking a run for?
2: You know, that's part of it because I I don't want to spend years climbing the ladder of uh, going through the systems, but uh, frankly, to get involved with uh, a higher level, either state government or I don't know. I just don't think I'd do well as one of 4,400 people in the, <laughs> the House or even 100 in the Senate. So. But yeah. I do think that um, I can offer some leadership that uh, might be appreciated.
1: So you're going to set your sights high, it sounds like. There you go. Well, that'll be interesting to look forward to see how that all works out. Uh, you have a reputation as a great dad to your six kids. Uh, what child-rearing advice do you have?
2: Well, that's kind. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. It's probably not politically correct. The best thing I did for my six kids is um, gave them a wonderful full-time mom. And uh, Susan, has uh, she's a wonderful mother to the kids, and I think my biggest contribution has been to enable her to be a mother. I think motherhood is underestimated, and I think uh, that's another thing I did is valued her contribution to the kids. I hope my kids feel that's true. The other thing, I think uh, I uh, provided an appropriate foundation for my kids. I think they're uniquely created. They have unique purposes for their time here on Earth. And my kids know that, and they know that I believe that. And uh, that's how I live my days, that uh, I have a purpose that I'm supposed to accomplish. And I come to work every day to do my absolute best. So we have a finite amount of time here on earth to do that. Then we have to be ready for what comes next. I think providing that foundation to the kids has been very important to them.
1: That's excellent advice. I think that that concludes our interview
2: today. Well, thank you, Margaret. It's been enjoyable.
1: It has been. Thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule.
2: You're more than welcome.
0: This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Next month's podcast features an interview with Louis F. Geschwender, former Vice President of Engineering and Research at AISC and Professor Emeritus of Architectural Engineering at the Pennsylvania State University. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.